Welcome to What She Said. I'm your host, Candace Sampson. Well, it's mid-July, which means we are officially in the throes of those lazy, hazy days of summer. But with the Bank of Canada cranking up the interest rates yet again, most of us might be spending our summer days lounging in our backyards, chilling on our balconies, or sprawling out in public parks. But here's the good news. This week's show will cost you absolutely nothing, but promises to deliver everything. Fun, insights, and great conversation. Opening my show today is Catherine Dunphy. We're diving into a crucial topic that unfortunately affects countless women worldwide, gender-based violence. Catherine, a fervent women's rights advocate, writer, poet, and humanist, has devoted her life to early intervention and prevention of such violence. As the founder of the Kimberly Project, she's on the front lines, tirelessly implementing social-emotional learning programs in childcare centers and kindergartens. Moving into somewhat uncharted territory, I'll be chatting with Jackie Yovanoff about polyamory. It's a topic I've hesitated to approach before, not out of judgment, but due to unfamiliarity. Jackie, an advocate, speaker, and self-proclaimed research nerd, has been exploring the world of non-monogamy for over a decade and joins us as she shares her insights on polyamory and how it has genuinely aligned with her relationship orientation. Then we have Anne Brody giving us the lowdown on the latest entertainment buzz from discussing the thrilling new Mission Impossible movie to reviewing the compelling Miracle Club starring Laura Linney, Kathy Bates, and Maggie Smith. Anne is here to keep us informed and entertained. I then take you on a journey with Tenzilla Khan, a woman whose story epitomizes empowerment and resilience. Tenzilla, a passionate entrepreneur, activist, public speaker, author, and filmmaker, refuses to let her disability limit her. Recognized with the prestigious Amal Clooney Women's Empowerment Award, Tenzilla will share her experiences and insights on solo travel as a woman with a disability. Then meet Lara Wellman, an experienced coach and ardent advocate for self-compassion. Lara challenges the relentless hustle culture, offering a refreshing perspective on what we perceive as laziness. Her forthcoming book, You're Not Lazy, delves deeper into this subject. And finally, we have Claire Kumar, joining us to share her expertise on productivity and inclusivity. As a productivity catalyst, executive coach, and international speaker, Claire will provide guidance on advocating for our own needs effectively and handling sensitive conversations without becoming defensive. Now let's get this show on the road right here on What She Said. My first interview today focuses on an issue that affects far too many women across the globe, gender-based violence. It's a difficult but necessary conversation, and here to help us navigate it is Catherine Dumphy. Catherine is an advocate for women's rights, a writer, poet, and humanist, whose work is devoted to early intervention and prevention of gender-based violence. She is the founder of The Kimberly Project, an innovative Canadian charity working tirelessly to implement social emotional learning programs in child care centers and kindergartens. Welcome, Catherine, and thank you so much for joining me to discuss this topic. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. It's uh, important to, um, to share the message of violence prevention. Um, I know we're not 
in a violence prevention month. But for me and for my family, July is always a violence prevention month for us because that's the anniversary of the attack of my sister-in-law, Kimberly Black. And Kimberly obviously is doing really well right now. She's on the board of the Kimberly Project um, and, you know, doing exceptionally well. Actually, the two of us will be cohorts in our doctoral program starting in September. So so those for those who are, uh, I just want to point out that um, I did an interview with uh, Kimberly last year or two years ago and a long form podcast. I'm going to put it in the liner notes of when this goes live on podcast, just so people can refer back to it because she is absolutely incredible and just an amazing, amazing human. But if you might, could you give us just maybe a quick, uh, you know, rundown of what happened to Kimberly? Sure. Um, Kim was uh, working on her master's of education dissertation, and she went out uh, to take a brief walk in the evening to just clear her head. Um, And she usually takes she would usually take a walk and, you know, just after dinner. Um, She didn't come home. And my brother-in-law knew that something was wrong right away. So he went out looking for her. She was found the next day uh, naked in a creek bed near death. So what had happened is that uh, someone had followed her on her walk and he knew her, her route. Um, and he took an opportunity when he saw it to assault her and drag her into the woods. Um, and, you know, he, he, he thought that he had killed her. I think, um, because, um, you know, she was in such terrible shape. She required facial reconstruction. Um, she was very medically sensitive. Um, and, you know, she's still going through that process and requires additional surgeries. So, um, you know, really, we were very grateful that she survived because she could very easily have not and been another statistic of a woman being murdered. Um, but we're really grateful and thankful that she's alive and she can do, she's doing everything she wants to do now. She is living her life on her terms. And she's a really shining example of a woman who is saying no to shame, the shame of the perpetrator that was, you know, he was trying to foist it upon her and she refuses to, to accept it. And all women should refuse to accept that shame that kind of comes with the experience of sexual assault. Absolutely. There is no excuse for it under any circumstances at all. Mm-hmm. So I, I couldn't agree with you more. Can you tell me a little bit then about, you, you, you know, you have the Kimberly Project. So I'd like to know, what does the Kimberly Project do? Well, our primary objective is educational. So I, when I, when I, when all of this happened, I was like, how do we stop this from happening? Like this, we can't do this anymore. Like people's lives are being destroyed. Um, and so it turned, you know, it, I'm, I'm an avid researcher. So I, I started looking at what types of programs are really beneficial for prevention of violence. And the ones that are most beneficial are what are called social emotional, uh, learning programs. So they are a very early intervention. The You can utilize social emotional skills or training all through your life. But the prime point when you kind of, well, the uptake is really good is between the ages of three and six, which is, I mean, insanely early, but it has the most lasting impact on outcomes. So, and even though this is an anti-violence mo- um, motive, the Social emotional uh, learning is not doesn't just benefit, you know, statistics with regards to violence. It really is a 
emotional kickstart for kids. It teaches them about emotional regulation. It teaches them about empathy, engagement, uh, resilience, critical thinking. Like it gives them like a plethora of skills that will inoculate them as adults to help them with coping mechanisms. And we, we all know that everybody's kind of struggled to cope during COVID and that we're still kind of living with the reverberation of that with, with regards to mental health and, and with regards to people just, you know, really at their wits end, honestly, every time I, you know, open up my phone and look at a newspaper, I'm always confronted by some story that you can see that someone was really struggling um, and was facing a lot of challenges. And so this programming, which has the benefit of, of violence prevention, is also really geared to strengthening mental health and resilience so that people can cope well into adulthood with the challenges that life flings at it. I, I couldn't agree with you more. And of course, something uh, as big as this and as large a scope as you're going to try to, to cover uh, comes at a cost, like everything does in society. And so you have some innovative ways for fundraising. I was hoping you could share that with us. Yeah. Um, I, one of my, uh, my favorite things to do is to meditate. Um, it's one of the key focuses I'm going to be looking at in my research. And, um, so we're hosting a yoga event, a kindness, not violence yoga meditation that will be happening this time in Toronto, but next year everywhere on July 29th. And July 29th is the day that Kimberly was saved by the Durham police. And so we acknowledge that day and are so grateful uh, for those efforts of the Durham Police Force to find her, rescue her, and bring her home to us. And tell me about One in Three. One in Three is a new initiative that I've started as a social enterprise. So One in Three stands for one, One in Three Women, right? will experience sexual assault or sexual harassment in their lifetime, which is a staggering statistic. Um, but I wanted to to turn it into something good. So I've been in my spare time as like as a stress relief. I've been designing these fun little t-shirts um, with sassy sayings on them. Like uh, one that we've got is called gratitude is my attitude. Another one, empathy is my superpower. Um, and then I have other ones. I've got one with Frida Kahlo on it as haters going to hate. I'm just going to paint. Um, so yes, <clears throat> pardon me. Um, just trying to find an innovative way to help fund the Kimberly project. So, um, the website is live now. It's one in three T, just the letter T, um, dot com. If people are interested in checking out, uh, the merchandise, you know, basically I'm making them to sell them to fund the programming. And you've also partnered with a global nonprofit. I have an amazing nonprofit and they've developed this really leading curriculum. The, the, the organization is called Think Equal and they have spent the last seven years researching and, and de- developing this social emotional learning curriculum that's being used all around the world in Colombia, in, with, you know, in the Ukraine, in, um, in the Middle East, in South America, you know, it, in, northern Alberta, of all places, Uh, they have a class that is using this curriculum. And so what makes this curriculum different, there's two things. One, it's very cost effective. And two, it is a 30 week program with three lesson plans a week. And it comes with everything that a teacher would need in order to integrate social emotional learning into their classroom. 
And does this target the age group you were mentioning, that three to six age? So this would be sort of preschool into kindergarten? Yes, absolutely. And it's all through picture books and narrative. And then they have, you know, like, um, resources like a emotion wall so people could so the children could understand oh I'm feeling sad or am I feeling sad or frustrated and then they could understand that experience and then they have other things like um there's a, a module on uh, differences right understanding differences and skin color and they challenge the kids to see that no that person's not white and that person's not black we're all different shades of brown so a really encouraging way for kids to see differences as not a barrier to relationships. Lovely. Well, I know that Kimberly thinks you are a blessing, but I have to say, I think we can all consider you a blessing because you are doing so much incredible work for women across Canada and for our kids who are really going to come up in this society. And, you know, rather than them seeking out somebody like Andrew Tate, you know, yeah. they'll sort of have the critical thinking skills to push back on that those things when they see them online. So I just think this is incredible all around. So of course, if people want to get involved and connect with you, what is the best way for them to do that? They can email me directly. Um, I can be reached at donate at the Kimberly project.com and they, or sorry, is it .com? Yes, it is a .com address. And then our, our website is thekimberlyproject.org. So um, feel free. You can also sign up uh, for our newsletter as soon as I have a spare moment to write. <laughs> um, and they can also follow us on Instagram um, or threads because we have accounts on, on both those platforms and uh, Sayonara. Twitter. I was just going to say you are the first person <laughs> to mention threads on this show. So <laughs> bravo to you. I'm there as well. So Thank you so much, Catherine. It was a pleasure having you. Thank you so much, Candace. Have a great one. More with Candace Sampson and what she said coming right up. CareToKnow.ca is a free resource where Canadians receive the latest health information, updates on new and existing treatments, and advice from Canadian doctors via email. After enrolling at CareToKnow.ca, you'll receive accurate and reliable information from trusted Canadian medical experts delivered directly to your inbox. Members can also access the website for information on a variety of health-related topics. Through resources like vodcasts, podcasts, and live webinars, Canadian experts discuss how to manage a number of medical conditions and provide the latest knowledge and advice to help you make informed decisions about your family's health with your own healthcare provider. To sign up and start learning more about the health matters that impact you most, enroll in caretoknow.ca today. And now back to Candace Sampson and what she said. Today we're going to venture into a topic that I've hesitated to approach before, not out of judgment, but perhaps unfamiliarity. Polyamory is a term some of you may be acquainted with, but for many it may raise questions or even fear of the unknown. Personally, I've come to realize that it's essential to explore these topics to foster understanding and acceptance, just as we've done with discussions around trans rights and other important issues. So with that in mind, I'm thrilled to introduce Jackie Yovanov. Jackie is an advocate, speaker, and self-proclaimed research nerd who has been navigating the world of non-monogamy for over a decade, and she 
she's here to share her insights on polyamory, a relationship orientation that she feels aligns truly with her. Welcome to What She Said, Jackie. Thanks for having me, Candice. So let's begin with clarifying terms for people listening. Mm-hmm. Because I think the big one for me is, you know, can you explain the difference between polyamory and polygamy and why one is seen as a more empowering practice for women than the other? Mm -hmm. I know when I was growing up, the only examples I really saw out there of non-monogamy was like the 70s swinging key party and polygamy. (laughs) Um, So polygamy is more like the easiest example is sister wives. So you've got one man, one husband with multiple wives. Um, so it's the wives don't have the option of exploring other partners or any other connections, but the man can bring, you know, another wife, wife into the, the fold. Um, and we see a lot of not great practices out there when we look at, say, Bountiful BC, uh, if people remember that case, uh, where a lot of young girls, like they're not women, right? Young girls are being brought into these different arrangements, right? And so yeah. the way it's practiced is not great. So that's not what we're talking about. Right. <laughs> we are talking about polyamory, uh, where everyone involved in these structures is has their own autonomy, right? So can explore different connections and people aren't, nobody's told, no, you can't, right? Like I can, but you can't, right. which is kind of what polygamy boils down to. So you've spoken about challenging the notion of compulsory monogamy. So can you elaborate on why you think it's important for us to question what we believe we should do in our relationships? Mm-hmm. So yeah, the term is compulsory monogamy. So I'm not saying monogamy is bad, right? Monogamy fits a lot of people. Um, it works for a lot of people. But it's when we just go into something without examining it, whether we don't have conversations about what it means for us, does it fit us? So it's kind of like we look at it like a relationship escalator that we just kind of go on and we start in the early days of dating, right? Like you think high school even, right? When we're young and it's just you have one person you're dating and you kind of move or maybe you'll date a few a few people, but one at a time, right? It's kind of the, the good girl script. Right. Um, And then you're exclusively dating and then you're engaged and then you're married and then you maybe get a house and have kids. And so there's a set number of steps and they're set out for you. And like an escalator, they move in one direction and they're just taking you along. You're not examining what's happening and there's only room for two people side by side on the relationship escalator. Seems like there is no room along that escalator to pause and actually consider that you can get off. You don't get off of an escalator, right? Nope. And you don't stop it where it is, right? What if people are happy with what the relationship is at that point? Sometimes it's seen as a negative to not continue to, you know, escalate or or to move forward. Um, So there's a lot of ways that compulsory compulsory monogamy um, can harm us. Singledom is great, right? Non-monogamy can be great for people. So it's really, I really, really hope that people, especially when they're looking at getting married, have a conversation about what they want that relationship to look like. Does that include right. exclusivity, right? What does, what does monogamy even mean to people? If you have a, a lunch with a high school ex, is that crossing the line, right? People don't even have conversations about what monogamy means to them. 
It's an excellent point. And another common concern that comes up when discussing polyamory is jealousy, which I think a <laughs> lot of people would say, I don't want to share the person I love with somebody else. So you say it's treating like a check engine light. Can you elaborate mm -hmm. on that for me? Yeah, one of the most fascinating things about non-monogamy for me has been how we examine jealousy. So if you look at jealousy, Jealousy comes up in our all sectors of our lives, like maybe at work, we're jealous of someone's promotion, or friends, we're jealous that somebody, you know, they went on a girls weekend without us or whatever happened. But it's only in our romantic relationships where we treat jealousy like a, that made me jealous, so stop it, right? We don't have that. And that yeah. kind of goes with the entitlement we have um, sometimes with our, our partners as well. Um, but yeah, so jealousy is not really a full emotion on its own. There's something else going on, just like the check engine light. You're not just like, oh, check engine light. Hmm, okay. There's That's indicating something's wrong. So am I fearing um, someone's going to be better than me? I'm going to get abandoned. I'm going to have less time with my partner. I won't be special, right? So there's a whole bunch of things jealousy can be bringing up. And the cool thing is actually doing that introspection and figuring out, oh, what's this little voice? Something's tapping at me that like I'm feeling like, whatever issues are kind of popping up for me. And if communication in a monogamous relationship is huge, I would imagine it's even bigger in a polyamorous relationship. Mm -hmm. Yeah, one of the tenets that I kind of live by now is you have to have the conversations that could end your relationship. So you have to have those big conversations with your, your partner or partners. It's those things that we are afraid to bring up that fester and grow and become this kind of big third party in your uh, dual relationship, regardless, right, if, if you talk about it or not. Uh, maybe you find someone attractive at the office. Do you tell your partner that or not? Is that going to trigger some, some jealousy? But then what if you don't tell them? Then it becomes this like kind of secret thing. And maybe it grows and it grows and maybe it grows right into an affair. If we had had those conversations right at the beginning, maybe it's just like, oh, cool. You find someone attractive. What about them do you think you find attractive? And you can talk to your partner about it. So it's those, yeah, those communication, um, those skills are needed to have a healthy non-monogamous relationship for sure. Well, this is obviously a big, big topic mm -hmm. that we're not even going to scratch the surface on in this interview, but you've shot a light on it. And I think with some really great points. So, you know, if people want to learn more, Jackie, or have questions for you, where's the best place for them to connect with you? So I can be found on socials at Jackie Yo, J-A-C-K-I-Y-O, pretty much most of them. Uh, TikTok is real, Jackie Yo. And one of the podcasts I would recommend is Multi-Emory is a great place to start if people are looking into more about non-monogamy in any form. All right. Excellent. Thank you so much for joining me today, Jackie. Thank you. It's a busy, busy week at Saturday Night at the Movies with Anne Brody. So we're going to get right into it because I am personally so, so excited about Mission Impossible, Anne. You and the world. Oh, <laughs> the stunts look absolutely insane in this movie. Yeah. You know, he uh, rehearsed these stunts for three years. Oh, I believe and it. They shot them first right off the bat so that, he, you know, so that if he died, <laughs> they'd know to close down. Could you imagine? <laughs> oh, God, wouldn't that be the worst? If well, I saw... I saw a clip where that... The, I mean, everybody's seen this, so I'm not, I'm not sharing any spoilers here. Uh, in the trailer where he goes off the cliff on that motorcycle. And I yeah. saw a video about that specific stunt where they said, 
that was the first scene they filmed. Well, that's because he might have died. So they had to get it out of the way, make sure he lived. And he knows the risks. He's 61. How does he do this? It's crazy. And honestly, no CGI. I mean, even that train sequence was all built. Yep. They built all the train. Him. Yep. I know. I crazy. Know. It was, uh, it, yeah, exciting stuff. And, uh, you know, it's just, it, I can't even imagine what it's going to earn. Just can't even imagine. Yeah, I think this might be, Hollywood's got a lot pinned on this one, I think. So let's see where this one goes. Yeah. Um, well, they're hoping to get people back to into theaters. Absolutely. the main thing. So. so that's the big one this week. But I think as exciting to me as Mission Impossible, I got to say going a little different here, is the Miracle Club. Very different. <laughs> but yeah. Laura Linney, Kathy Bates, Maggie Smith, I mean, powerhouses. They are. And it's a, and also it's a little tiny village in Ireland. And it's about a community that knows everybody else's business. And everyone has a certain significant current problem that they're dealing with. Laura Linney shows up. She left there 40 years earlier. She'd never been back to see her mother. And so she returns for the funeral. And everybody gives her, uh, you know, they turn their backs on her. Eventually, she connects with them, and they all decide to go to Lourdes to get miracles, to pray for miracles, where the Virgin Mary was sighted back in uh, 1868, I think it was. Um, so I can't tell you what happens after that, but just know that these performers are putting their hearts and souls into it. Uh, Maggie Smith, it's the furthest cry from Lady Violet that you could imagine, um, and uh, there's this handsome young Catholic prince who everybody thinks Laura Linney's going after. <laughs> so there's a lot to entertain in it. It's it's really quite fun. And it's the time capsule of, of rural life in Ireland in the 60s, which is amazing to see. Is that in theaters, Anne, or is it on? It is. Yes, theaters. in theaters. So the other one that caught my eye this week that you have up is The Jewel Thief. Oddly enough, one of the most notorious jewel thieves in the world comes from Winnipeg. <laughs> Crazy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he's, uh, he was a young kid. He started at age 12 robbing ATMs and convenience stores and getting, and then, and also robbing um, Radio Shack. That was his number one target. Uh uh, Gerard Blanchard. That was his number one target because he'd, he'd steal all this equipment and then he'd take it back as a return and get the cash for it. And at, by age 15, he was making $50,000 a day. I mean, just mind bending. And he, he locked into it more heavily as time went by, obviously, because he had some kind of you know, condition that he had to satisfy in his psyche. Um, he was arrested once and released early as a boy. Uh, but then he went to Europe. He spread his uh, thieving ways across three continents. But the Europe thing was the most interesting because he stole a famous antique diamond hairlock from the palace in Venice. In Venice? Vienna, sorry. Yes. And um, and he has no conscience. And he then hooks up with arms dealers in Africa associated with Al-Qaeda. This is a Canadian boy who grew up poor in 
Winnipeg. And honestly, it just blows your mind. It's an absolutely crazy story. So that's on that's on Hulu, right? That's yeah, Disney Plus. Okay, perfect. Yeah. Yeah. Well, speaking of Disney Plus, I want to just before we end here, I want to touch on The Bear because I just started watching that. I just binged season one and I was absolutely in love with this show. You haven't um, seen it before? I hadn't. So I'm just getting I'm caught hot. up. Yeah, it's so good. The writing, the performances, and the fact that you're in this cramped, hot, steamy, greasy kitchen, you'd think, oh, let me out of here. This is too claustrophobic. No. You're with them and you're somehow taking part. It's really intimate. And they have this wonderful ensemble that works together um, in various uh, jobs within the kitchen. And we see them all develop as people, let alone as part of the restaurant. And it just gives me shivers thinking about how wonderful the bear is. So uh, now Carmi wants to rebuild Chicago beef and turn it into something finer because he was a five-star chef in New York. So, uh, oh, yes, you know that it's fresh in your mind because you just saw it. So, you know, he inherited his parents' basic hot dog place and he's he's wanting now to revamp it. And I must say the biggest treat in, well, not the biggest treat, but a wonderful treat in season two that you're going to look forward to. And I'm not going to say anything more than Jamie Lee Curtis shows up and you'll be left speechless. I've heard. I have heard her performance is outstanding. I can't wait. And short. I can't wait. I'm going to binge that. I'm telling you. I binge season one. I will binge season two. And I can't wait for them to start production on season three. That's the only thing I hate about binging is then I got to wait so long for the next season. It was a long wait between one and two. So I hope they, they speed it up, but without losing the quality. Absolutely. All right, Anne, thank you so much. You have these and so much more this week over on what she said talk.com, including the after party and Black Mirror. So I encourage people to go check that out and we'll talk to you next week. We'll talk to you next week. More of What She Said with Candace Sampson coming up. Are you looking for authentic, high-quality, and handcrafted seal fur and leather products created by Canadian Indigenous fashion designers and artists? Look no further than Proudly Indigenous Crafts and Designs, or Pick and D for short. Their e-commerce platform celebrates and showcases the skill and creativity of Indigenous fashion designers and artists. These innovative artists combine traditional sewing techniques with a contemporary approach to create modern and timeless accessories, footwear, clothing, and home decor products. And when you buy from Pick and D, you're not just getting a beautiful and authentic seal product, you're also supporting Indigenous communities. Proudly Indigenous products are natural, eco-friendly, and of the highest quality. So visit ProudlyIndigenousCrafts.com today and experience the beauty of Indigenous craftsmanship. Pick and D, proudly showcasing Indigenous fashion and supporting Indigenous communities. Now, back to Candace Sampson and what she said. 
In this next interview, we're journeying into the inspiring world of Tanzilla Khan, a woman whose journey epitomizes empowerment and resilience. Tanzilla is a passionate entrepreneur, activist, public speaker, author, filmmaker, and a woman who doesn't allow her disability to define her limits. With a mission to create exclusive spaces and solutions, she has traveled across 19 countries, founded a urgent menstrual kit delivery service in Pakistan, and even launched Pakistan's first fully accessible podcast, Brain Masala. In recognition of her exceptional contributions, Tanzilla recently received the prestigious Amal Clooney Women's Empowerment Award, and she joins us today to share her experiences and insights on solo travel as a woman with a disability. Welcome to What She Said, Tanzilla. Thank you so much, Candice. And as you were reading my introduction, I'm like, holy cow, I'm so busy. I shouldn't be this busy. You are incredible. I mean, it's hard to keep up with you. So can you begin by sharing maybe some of your experiences traveling traveling solo as a woman with a disability? Of course. I think traveling came very naturally to me because of my work. It was not something that I had pursued because of the fear that is still instilled in us as women. And for me, as a woman with a disability, I thought traveling was something only available to people who are extremely independent. They have a lot of money. So I never really pursued it, but I was pushed into it because of my speaking engagements. So it happened by accident. And when I started, first of all, engaging with the embassies to get visas, because with a Pakistani passport, these are the challenges that come through. And your adventure pretty much begins uh, with the application form that you have to fill up for the visa. Um, visa uh, journey and then also the collection of documents I realized this is something that really grooms you and makes you understand how the world is and then once you're on that flight and you're on your own and you're not just having this adventure but you're also educating everybody involved whether it's the airline or if it's the hotel or even the taxi driver you're like you know this is the world that needs to learn a lot about inclusion and one can play a very small role while having fun. And and you emphasize that traveling is a human right and that everyone should have the safety and opportunity for it. So can you discuss some of the challenges you've encountered and how you've navigated those? Absolutely. So I grew up reading a lot of books and I would read a lot of travelogues written by men from my own country, from Pakistan. Ishwak Ahmed is a very famous writer. And the way he would write about a particular city or country and the level of access he would have to that culture, it would really inspire me that why can't everyone have this level of exposure, this level of connection with other cultures and develop that empathy. And now when I'm in that space myself, I'm able to talk about it, write about it. I feel everyone deserves this. You don't have to go to a five-star hotel to experience luxury of traveling. Sometimes even traveling to another city and staying with a local family is something that every human being deserves to have because it gives you something very special, Candice. It gives you that level of empathy you can't find in classrooms. You can't find in books also. You just have to have that actual connection with a human being to, to, to know that, to feel that. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more on that one point, too. You know, I, I traveled to Tahiti with my daughters, and we stayed with a family. Mm-hmm. And it was the best part of the trip was connecting with people there and learning about their culture. So it is such a wonderful way to connect with people around the world. I, I couldn't agree with you more. So can you talk about the importance of women with disabilities taking the lead in speaking about their contributions and roles in society? Well, 
I I hate to admit that I've not seen a lot of other women with a disability travel the way I travel and even if they do travel they try to rely more on the tour operators on those fixed itineraries where you're picked from the airport you go through a certain travel package and then you come back to the airport I on the other hand like to explore a bit more and try to take risks and literally hit the streets to figure out which places i want to stay at what are the activities i want to do that's a bit risky but to my pleasant um, surprise it's not a challenge at all people are very kind people are very empathetic and they have so much to offer even to people with disabilities it's only a matter of time and effort on behalf of people with disabilities especially women to just pick up their passport pick up their rucksack and just hit the streets because the world is available equally to you and to me it's only for us to get up and own it and that's how i see it and i have not been disappointed this fills me with so much hope you have no idea and we've become so cynical but to hear you say that that just fills me with hope so thank you for sharing that uh, entrepreneurial activity is a big part of your life and you believe it's very empowering for women as do i so can you share how your entrepreneur entrepreneurial journey has shaped you and impacted your travels I think uh, to be an entrepreneur one does not have to set up a brick and mortar shop and they don't have to sell something sometimes even collaboration is a big entrepreneurial process that one can have so in pakistan i have a menstrual healthcare company that's doing well and now while i'm traveling i try to collaborate with other content makers or other local businesses to promote their ideas and to leverage my own audience as well and these smaller collaborations even if it's a pr collaboration is entrepreneurial because it's so innovative and to have a cross cutting of disability that's literally like accessing a market that has been untapped people with disabilities are a huge market and they have money to spend on products and services only if they are accessible so i think entrepreneurship is more like a mindset and it just segues into anything that you're trying to do and it's so exciting candis to go find a service um that is very very local in a city and to ask them to become inclusive and help them do that so i think that has been a mindset that has been really really helpful and your work obviously is deeply intertwined with creativity so how is creativity served as a medium for you to express yourself and make a difference particularly when traveling i think growing up creativity became like a huge uh, skill that i i had and i harnessed it to help solve problems in terms of my disability i'll give you an example so in pakistan we love to eat a lot and we love to eat at very odd hours sometimes after 12 in the night but at that time the parents are sleeping and you cannot even drop a pin because if you do the mum would get up and she would tell you dinner was served at 9 what were you doing then so at that time mostly me and my brother would order pizza at night and when he was asleep i would have to do it myself but the doors were locked So I remember I had the money I wanted pizza what do you do so I found a solution that if I use like a simple hanger I can actually open the locks in my house <laughs> and so began this journey of having pizza every night nobody found out until this <laughs> and and that is what that is creativity you find these solutions to your own problems so naturally i think creativity is something that can really bridge the gap between different communities it doesn't have a language so there are limited barriers right there so i think creativity is something humor especially not just creativity humor also can really convey a message that is otherwise a bit taboo or hard to convey 
And finally, you know, what advice would you give to women then with disabilities who aspire to do what you do? Um, and what can we do to support these women and make travel more inclusive and accessible? I think by the end of the day, if we allow women with disabilities to plan their own trips, rather than have those fixed plans that you have to go from one place to the other, if we just give them the space on on media, just like you did, I mean, I'm, I'm so grateful for this. Thank you so much. Just to share stories. And also, if we can um, get spaces in the media, for example, if there's a film being made about traveling, if have a story about disability planted in there, or stand-up comedy, even social media, writing, and now, of course, we're going in the metaverse. We're like expanding our own universes as well. Let's just keep the conversation going. It's it's a, it's a slow process, but it's very, very impactful. You are a complete inspiration. I never know what I'm going to get with an interview. And I have to tell you, just you're just bringing the biggest smile to my face today. So I can't thank you enough for joining me, Tanzila. You're just a joy. So thank you. Candice, it was lovely talking to you and I hope I get to see you sometime. Thank you so much for giving me this opportunity. I want people to be able to keep up with you. So where is the best place for them to do that? I have my website, tanzilakhan.com, where I publish a lot of my own blogs. But you can also find me on Journey Women, a platform that I recently started writing for. Excellent. We're going to put those in the liner notes when this goes live on podcast and we'll have you back again someday soon. I'd love to. My next guest brings us a refreshing perspective on the concept of laziness and the prevailing hustle culture that is exhausting us all. Meet Lara Wellman, a seasoned coach with over 15 years of experience as an entrepreneur. Besides her professional roles, she is the mother of three teens, a wife, and a woman who navigates the complexities of ADHD and endometriosis. Lara's personal and professional experiences have made her a staunch advocate for self-compassion, teaching us that it's okay okay to not always be on the go. Her forthcoming book, You're Not Lazy, offers a deeper dive into this subject. Laura, welcome to what she said. Hi, thanks for having me. So to start off, could you share your thoughts on why it's crucial for us to move away from this notion that we're not lazy if we're not always hustling? Yeah, I think that we are so programmed to think that being busy is better, that we're supposed to always be productive, we're supposed to be doing things all the time, that we don't allow ourselves to rest, and we don't give ourselves permission to do that. Or if we do, we think it's something that we aren't supposed to be doing. So you'll hear people say things like, I'm taking a lazy day. And that means they're just resting. They're spending the day reading a book. They're going to watch some TV. But they immediately have to justify it as saying, I am being lazy. And I'm okay with that. But it is lazy. And it's because we're so programmed to think, what am I supposed to be doing more right now? Yeah, and it's funny because we uh, we attach a sense of shame to that. And I know this because... I just did this myself a couple of weeks ago. I took a full day, did nothing. And I had to force myself, physically force myself to not do anything because I'd been just so on the go and I felt bad about myself. Isn't that crazy? Oh, and it's so common. You hear people say that, right? Like, I'm going to do nothing, but then I spent the whole day feeling badly that I was doing nothing. So I didn't even really get the benefit of doing nothing. Exactly. (laughs) It's exhausting. So your message, obviously, of you're not lazy, it's very clear. It's empowering. So can you share more about what inspired you to speak out on this topic and how your personal experiences have influenced your perspective? 
Yeah. Well, the the fact that I thought of myself as lazy is how I actually figured out that I have ADHD because I've been told by professionals that a lot of people with ADHD tend to think of themselves as lazy. And so somebody said that and I was like, oh, I tell people I'm lazy all the time. And other people are like, but Lara, you run businesses, you have multiple businesses, you're always doing something. And as soon as I would say, I'm going to take a Netflix day, I was like, yeah, but people who really are successful don't do that, right? Like I would, I would attach all of this shame to the fact that I didn't, that I needed a lot of rest. And so I started to let that go. And then as a coach, I'm talking to people all the time and I see them doing the same thing, right? They're so hard on themselves every time they want to slow down because we're just taught to be going hard, to be doing more. If you really want it, hard work is what you're going to have to do. And and then all of the not hard work feels like you're you're doing something you're not supposed to be doing. And when you can let that go, it changes so much. Yeah, it's funny, you know, you touched on something there, I think about every self help book, every guru book out there, and it's just work hard, put your nose down, you know, none of them are really saying rest, or, you know, take a day for yourself, where you can actually doing that actually can make you more productive. Yeah, and that's a thing that's really important. When you're full to capacity, when you're always go, 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 there's no room for the next thing. There's no room for the next idea. You need quiet and and slowing down to be able to find the next thing. And so in our goal of go, 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 we we stop ourselves from being innovative, from being able to find new success. So it's it's sort of like we get caught in this twisted way of thinking that stops us from thriving. And life isn't all about the hustle and the making of money. And I think we've really lost that plot in our society. You know, life is about living. It is. It really is. And I think that's, that's the next part. That's like the next level of like even – you know, maybe resting will help you be more productive. But what if we don't need to be productive all the time? That's like the next the next <laughs> level of where we're going. Yeah, we're not ready for that. We're going to start at this base level, Laura. <laughs> That's right. One step at a time. <laughs> so I don't want you to give away a lot of spoilers from the book. But can you share a couple of strategies for fostering sort of that self-compassion you talk about and recognizing our accomplishments, even if they're just, you know, sitting on the couch all day? Yeah, a lot of it is so much about just realizing we're already doing okay, that, you know, we don't need perfection, because perfect isn't really a thing. Like, everybody has a different view of what perfect is. So us trying to be perfect for everyone isn't possible. So how can we just start to choose the things that work for us? Instead of trying to be the way you think you're supposed to be, ask yourself if there's something that you would do instead and let yourself choose something different. It's okay to not be all the things you thought you should be. Start to ask yourself what you want to be. And I think that's the first step to get into to recognizing what you're already doing well, and that you don't need to change who you are to suddenly be this version of successful you thought you wanted. All right. I obviously, Laura, this this message resonates with me personally, but I'm sure it resonates with a lot of people listening. So I want them to be able to keep up with you because I know you're always sharing and discussing this. So where can they connect with you? 
So I created a new Facebook group called We're Not Lazy, and that is a place where people are just coming together and being like, yeah, we don't need to do this all the time, which is fantastic. I also am on Instagram, uh, and I'm on TikTok as Lara Wellman or The Biz Studio, and then my website is The Biz Studio, thebiz.studio. All right, and are you on threads yet? That's the big question this week. I am on threads um, at Lara Wellman, and I'm still playing around with it and enjoying the old school Twitter feel. Nice. All right. We're going to put all the links to that uh, when this goes live on podcast. And Lara, thanks so much for reminding us that it's okay to be lazy. More with Candace Sampson and what she said coming right up. La, 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 la. And now, back to Candace Sampson and what she said. In the last segment, we heard from Laura Wellman, who encouraged us to let go of the guilt and embrace self-compassion, reminding us that we're not lazy and hard isn't always better. Building upon Laura's insights, we're going to explore another facet of this conversation. My next guest, Claire Kumar, will guide us on how we can advocate for our own needs effectively and handle sensitive conversations without becoming defensive. A productivity catalyst, executive coach, and international speaker, Claire's work illuminates the crossroads of productivity and inclusivity. She emphasizes the importance of designing for well-being to maintain sustainable performance while avoiding the pitfalls of burnout. Claire's approach encourages leaders to foster an inclusive environment, nurturing the best contributions for each team member. Claire, it's a pleasure to have you back on the show. Oh, thanks, Candice. I'm looking forward to this conversation. Oh, this is a, such a great topic. So can you start by telling us how to identify and articulate our needs effectively in a professional setting. Yeah, I think, first of all, honing in on what you do need to perform at your best is really, really powerful. And I always say tune in before you lean in. So you've got to have a moment of self-reflection and really getting clear on what it is that you want. I think then, you, you know, there's a number of exercises you can go through to make sure you're being very clear about what it is and you're bringing the emotion out of it so that people will still listen. So a little bit of practice, a little bit of finding the right words, maybe writing a first draft where you get all your anger out and then moving on to exactly how you'd like to present your request. Listen, I could tell you from a personal setting, it helps to write that down. When I was going through my divorce, every time I had an angry reply, I would write it out and I would have people I trusted read it before I would send because it's so crucial to just sort of edit. <laughs> yeah. And here's another thought is you might even record yourself saying it because yeah. sometimes our tone, and this is, <laughs> ask me how I know, um, <laughs> sometimes our tone can belie the emotion that's still baked into the way we're expressing ourselves. And you might hear it if you listen to yourself recorded. Yeah, I love that. And, and, you know, oftentimes, too, though, we hesitate to ask for what we need, because we have hang ups, you know, we might think it'd be viewed as a sign of weakness, others might think it might be viewed as a sign of like pushing somebody around. So how do you encourage your clients to shift their mindset? Well, I think we are up against a culture that celebrates hustle, not help. And so we don't have a lot of role modeling of asking for help. I mean, we saw Jacinda Ardern step down. We didn't see a story where she was looking for support, you know, mm -hmm. before making that decision, fully support her decision, by the way. I, I think that we need to 
realize what we're up against and that our culture is not celebrating it as well. We might perceive it as we might have a sense of, I call it expectation of competence. We might have grown up with this sense that I should know how to do this. Years Mm -hmm. when I worked helping people organize their homes or workspaces, I would have a lot of husbands veto their wives' request for assistance organizing. There was fundamental belief that you should just know how to do this. And sometimes we take that on and we may never have been taught how to do something. So we might be quite legitimate asking for help. That's that's fascinating. I like that that take. That that's interesting to me. So so let's share some strategies then for handling defensive reactions when discussing our needs with others because I think this happens a lot. Yeah, I think the important thing to remember is you might be feeling uncomfortable about raising the ask. The person who's fielding this question may also not expect it, may not know the answer. So anything you can do to calm the expectation down, um, show that you're a willing partner in discussion, depressurize it, first of all, by not adding your stress to it, but by also making room for the other person's reaction. I just complained at a city pool recently uh, because it's not safe, what I see in in terms of the design of the space. And I spoke to the person in charge of the pool in charge people. And I said, you know, if you want a backdoor conversation to create some ideas or suggestions, I'm here for it. So I'm not there to attack you. I'm not there to, but I'm there to really lobby for effective change. And I'm willing to be a partner in that discussion. So I think that attitude is helpful. And in that answer right there, I think you just displayed something that leads me to my next question, and that is empathy. And so what is the role of empathy in these conversations and how can we cultivate it in, in, in the interactions we have with others? Well, I think first of all, being able to ask means that you are showing empathy and self-compassion. Um, you know, you're taking care of yourself. Then when we can extend it to boldly ask for what we need without really crushing anybody else's soul or sacrificing anybody else's soul, we need to step into that empathy for other people. And it helps us really understand where somebody might be coming from. We can stay curious and it just paves the way for a less contentious discussion. Yeah, I think, you know, speaking up is hard for everybody. I understand that. But I think particularly when it comes to women, it's very hard. And it's something we need to learn and, and you know, build that skill. So, of course, you help people all the time, Claire, doing this very thing. So if people want to reach out and find out more and how, how maybe you might be able to help them, where can they go? I'm going to give you two places. First of all, clairekumar.com. That's where you'll find me. You can hook up to a a discovery coaching call if you want. But if you're interested in some really quick learning, I have a podcast as well. And Happy Space Podcast is a place to check out some other people's insights along the lines of this conversation as well. Incredible. Thank you so much. I'm going to put those in the liner notes when this goes out on podcast, Claire. And as always, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you. That's it for What She Said this week. Stay up to date with my newsletter by signing up at whatshesaidtalk.com and be sure to follow on social at What She Said Talk on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for videos of these interviews and more. You can also catch me on TikTok at Candace Said. Finally, be sure to subscribe to What She Said with Candace Sampson wherever you listen to podcasts to catch past episodes and extended interviews. I'll be back next week with more What She Said. 
Hey listeners, I'm Christy. And I'm Melissa. And this is Buried Motives, where we dig deep into the details of some of the most gruesome dirtbag murderers. She said she enjoyed hurting things that can't fight back. And that is a disturbing view into the mind of a murderer in such a dirtbag. Yeah, that's not even strong enough words. This is totally a recipe for disaster and not to justify whatever is going to happen, but you can totally understand and see how this would be in the works. If you were only to look at what she did later on and not know any of that history, she would appear like off the wall crazy. Oh, 100% because we're not even close to getting to the end yet. But you can just see this pattern and all this kind of stuff developing in her, which is what we're here for. We're digging deep. Join us each Thursday as we unearth the dirt bags that live among us and the motives buried there. Hope you join us as we exhume the truth. I'm Connie Teeson, the host of Broadcast Dialogue, the podcast. We focus on Canada and the challenges facing Canadian radio and TV, as well as highlighting those moving the industry forward from podcasting and streaming to new broadcast tech. Check us out at broadcastdialogue.com or your favorite podcast app. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.